0: Greetings and welcome to the Wall and Main podcast. I'm your host, Douglas Blake. Today we're joined by none other than three time Grammy Award winning singer, songwriter, producer, pop megastar, and lead vocalist for One Republic, Ryan Tedder. Ryan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. As that introduction suggests, there's a lot to unpack here. Let's start on Main Street and work our way over to Wall Street. What drove yeah. your passion for music?
1: Um, my passion for music was fueled by largely in part to being an only child. Um, I didn't have brothers and sisters growing up uh, to play with uh, or distract me. I didn't have, um, you know, uh, I, I, all the usual distractions. And so I lost myself in music and <clears throat> saw different songs in the, let's say, starting in the late eighties, uh, through, uh, the nineties, two thousands, I would find myself walking to and from the school bus, um, to and from class in between class. I, I was the kid that always threw headphones on, like, you know, they always show that in like the, the teen rom-coms or, or like coming of age TV shows in high school. There's always that kid that's got headphones on walking, you know, past the lockers. I was that kid. Um, and I found that music was my escape. I didn't. I, I wasn't overly in love with where I lived uh, culturally. I was, you know, it wasn't a bad place. I grew up in outside of, Tulsa, and then outside, way outside of Oklahoma City, kind of out in out in the boondocks. And there wasn't really anything to do, uh, to be honest. You know, if you weren't playing football um, or or partying and drinking beer, like th- those are the two f- pastimes. I'm pretty sure they still are. And so music was my escape. You know, I hadn't traveled the world yet, but I could listen to Peter Gabriel and, and imagine being, you know, in England in the countryside. You know, I could, I could listen to U2. I could listen to Radiohead or whoever it may be and kind of transport myself to a different place. And so that's really that, what it became, it became the soundtrack to my life, like literally vignettes within school, high school and and. I had headphones on and I would kind of observe all the kids and all the, like all the happenings. And I would have a, I would change the song based on the setting and, and create my own soundtrack to life. And um, I was playing piano the whole time. I was forced to, to take piano since the age of three. Uh, and then I willingly decided for the first time at age 12 to start playing and got decent, um, picked up guitar in high school and, um, you know, I, I just once I realized that you could make a profession out of it, you could actually make a living writing songs or, or being an artist. I was probably 14, uh, 14, 15. And once it once it clicked that that was actually a job you could have uh, at that point, I quietly had decided I had determined that that was what I was going to do. I hadn't told my mom. I hadn't told anybody. And I kept that quiet uh, between from 15 all the way up to probably age 20. Uh, nobody knew that that was quietly what I was working on.
0: Wow, well, that's, that's incredible. I think so many people can relate to that notion of having your own personal soundtrack for your life with, with the music that's meaningful to you and, and that deep connection. And and so it's not surprising. You know, I, I do want to make an observation. The mega hit song, Apologize, really took off in the heart of the global financial crisis. Counting <laughs> yep. stars... Seem to capture the spirit of the social media revolution. And now in the midst of extreme global uncertainty, everybody on the planet is whistling along to I Ain't Worried. Yeah. Is this just a coincidence, or are you intentionally composing the soundtrack yeah. of the modern era?
1: I, I I really try to align my our biggest hits with macroeconomic events. Uh, <laughs> right, okay. you know, geo- geopolitical right. unrest. Um, you know, sure. those are the things. Um, you
0: got this morning's yeah. consumer price index reading, and correct. you got to work writing a song about it. I'm sure. Correct.
1: Yeah. Correct. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm. I'm. I am definitely <laughs> trying to uh, to hedge inflation and buy down rates right now, and and uh, we're using. I ain't worried to do it. Um, you know, yeah, it it is funny the timing of all that. It, it's not lost on me. You know that when Apologize took off in 07, um, I got paid for that. You know, it takes about a year to make a dollar off of, uh, before you get your first like check from any hit song on the radio or otherwise, it's about 12 months exactly. So right in the summer of Oh eight is when I finally got, you know, hit with my first legitimate income a- as the market crashed and we were moving to Denver. And, um, and so I was walking around going, uh, what recession? Like I it, it was, I was so oblivious because it, the music industry is for better or worse, completely unaffected by macroeconomic events, uh, by recession, by housing crisis, by, uh, interest rates, inflation, none of those things really have any bearing on the music industry. Um, which is, uh, it's bizarre. It's maybe one of the only, um, only arenas that is protected from, uh, those tumultuous kind of up and down times. Um, but uh, yeah, I got lucky on that timing. I'll tell you that much. I definitely got lucky on that.
0: That's for sure. But, you know, luck is a, probably a very small component in, in your career trajectory. While so many people know you as the front man for One Republic, a lot of people don't realize how successful you are as a songwriter and producer. And I'll say that only because in my research, I, I was blown away, you know, by your track record and by your, your, your sort of hit list. Could you describe the process of writing and producing music for someone else versus doing it for one Republic?
1: Um, well, it's a hell of a lot easier. I'll say that. Um, it's more frustrating in the sense that you don't control the outcome and, you know, you could be, you could commit a month or two of your time to a project and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and give all your, you know, time and effort and energy, and whatever, only to have the artist um, get sick and, pull the plug on a whole album or, you know, decide that they um, are going to go, you know, back on a bender, whether it's drugs or alcohol or check themselves in a rehab or, or you write the biggest song ever for that artist's career, but it's about uh, the person that they're in love with currently dating, whatever. And then, and I've had this, I won't say who, but I, I had this one happen where I had this huge song coming on this artist It was going to make my year back in like 2017, 2018. And um, they broke up with the person that the song was about and reached out to me and said, uh, you know, uh, for obvious reasons, I can't put the song out. And I I was I was devastated. So it's easier. the, The process of creation for another artist is way easier because I don't have to have I don't have to sing it. I get to play the role, you know, and I was. I was, an, I was an actor uh, before I was ever a decent musician and acting was my main passion all through, you know, middle school, high school. And then I combined those two things with musical theater all through high school and into college. And uh, for a big chunk of my life, I thought I was going to be an actor. So I'm, I'm good at assuming a role. I'm really good at taking on that character and um, getting into the mindset of that other person, right? So that's what writing and producing is for other people. You really have to be empath- empathetic and, you know, you have to kind of by osmosis uh, channel their energy and emotion. But at the same time, I can have a complete emotional detachment from it. Um, I get off on the process. You know, it's just like some people just like cooking, you know, you could say you're Michelin star chef or, or you could strip them of their Michelin stars. They don't give a shit. They just like cooking. And that's me. I just like cooking. So that's that's really my process. That's my process. But very few
0: people, if anyone, I think, has had the level of success, both as a performing artist and as a producer and a songwriter for others. And you stole a word that I was going to use that, the notion of empathy, of understanding people to be able to encapsulate somebody else so accurately, despite the fact that you're really just interpreting the information they're giving to you. And so, you know, I guess most people are struggling to understand how somebody could be so good at everything. And I want to figure out what that secret is, but it's, I I think to your point, when you're able to translate one skill so effectively into another one at, at the extreme highest level, you know, I, I think it does come down to you as, as, as a person and, and understanding people and and being able to have that empathy and that understanding of, of, of those people. But, you know, since you're so amazing at everything, I'm going to steal some free consultation from you here. What elements would you look for if you were producing a podcast? Hold on, I'm going to grab a pen. <laughs> uh, uh,
1: you know, definitely, um, you know, a lot of my friends are in the podcast business. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, you want... You want somebody obviously that um, is able to riff. I think the people that have, you know, look at some of the podcasts that are successful that everybody listens to right now, you either have to have like this kind of unlimited wellspring of human interest stories, such as like the, the NPR stuff, you should know podcast, which is those two quirky guys kind of just picking topics out of thin air, the history of ice cream, for instance, right. They'll go from the history of ice cream to, who was Joan of Arc, right? And it's all random tidbits and it's fascinating. And that's one angle. The other angle is people such as, um, you know, the Joe Rogan approach, which is really long, intense conversations fueled fueled by a little whiskey, a little weed, uh, and kind of irreverent uh, hot takes on social issues and and combined with, you know, uh, delving into the biography, the history of, of, of notable people. Then you got Smartless, uh, which is, anytime you got three well three celebrities two of which are you know basically part-time comedians um i listen to smartless all the time and i don't even think they have a format i think they just it's just like let's just call on other famous people and just shoot the shit for 45 minutes um but i think keeping the pace moving for sure keeping the energy i think with all content because i do television as well i've been on some you know, we had a show called Songland on NBC. I was one of the EPs and one of the, the the faces of that show, and I've got two or three other TV shows happening right now at the moment. And uh, beginning, like number one, most important thing for anything, in my opinion, is energy. It's just energy. Keeping the energy up and keeping people engaged. Energy is key. And anyway, that's it. I'll shut. I'll shut up. That's my, <laughs> I love that's that. My no, no, thank podcast. you. I,
0: I, yeah, I'm just writing. <laughs> Uh, as quickly as I possibly can to get all that down, but you're absolutely right. And and I think that spontaneity, as you mentioned the the groups that are kind of riffing a little bit. Yeah, I think the people are clamoring for things that are unique and different and and that real time connection that you get from things like podcasts and social media where it goes in an unexpected direction. It's hard to recreate that with like scripted uh, entertainment. So um, yeah, I I see your point there for sure. (laughs) Moving over, I I promised our mutual uh, friend, uh, Nelson Braff, who's one of our advisors at Kingswood, um, that I'd get to business quickly and not make this, uh, you know, not fan out too hard on you here, Ryan. And so uh, moving to the business side, you sold your catalog of music to private equity firm KKR last year uh, with a valuation estimated at around $200 million. Can you describe for us that transaction and your thought process behind it?
1: Yeah, well, I had actually done and it, an, an, I had sold off about twenty five percent of my catalog, um, in twenty sixteen quietly that nobody really knew about because at the time I had achieved the highest valuation in years that anybody had gotten, and I, I forget the exact number of the deal, but it was around sixty million roughly, <clears throat> and that was my real estate fund. And the reason I did that, and the reason I sold uh, the catalog this time around. Was uh, to have the dry. Pa- it, it was a perfect storm. I'm, you know, I wasn't ready to do these types of transactions six, seven years ago uh, on a grand scale because I had enough emotional attachment. Like in 2016, 2015, you know, Counting Stars was still a new song, and I couldn't, I couldn't stomach parting ways with with the ownership of it. Um, and you know, even the concept of selling going forward rights to songs was so foreign to me. I was like how can you you know I, it, like it took a minute for me to to digest what it, what it meant and to realize oh you're just selling uh you know collated uh cash flow, right? And and people had at that point done enough studies to realize that what I said earlier the music uh, world is for the most part unaffected by um e- extreme spikes or dips in the global economy. It's just it's unaffected. Um, for the most part. And so I started investing in real estate in 2008, which was great timing for me. I bought a house, put a roof over my head, my wife, and then I called my business manager at the time. I said, "How much money do I have left? Can I buy some apartment buildings?" And he was like, "What for?" And I was like, "Because one day uh, I'm not going to want to write hit song. I'm not going to want to have to need a hit song to know what my income is going to be." And I had a very wise man uh, named Larry Larson when I was 20 years old. I was in L.A. recording some demos, and, um, and my cousin was managed by – and I'll get back I'll, – I'll, I'll, I'm summarizing all this to answer the, the catalog sale question. Um, I, I sold it because I knew that money was never going to be cheaper. And at least in my lifetime, I'd never seen it cheaper than, than 2021. I knew there had to be, there had to be a massive correction in the uh, economy, and uh, and interest rates uh, in uh, you know coming off the heels of COVID, when the government's just printing money, a third of all money in 2020 uh, and 20 beginning in 2022, a third, one out of every three dollars in the U.S. was printed within the last 18 months, and when I when you flood the market with fake money, basically. And you, it's just about our time before there's a massive correction and an inflationary event. And I knew enough about history and have partners around me, such as Nelson Braff and other guys that are, that are, um, you know, older than me and have, and have gone through a lot uh, more recessions. We all knew it was coming. And so I looked at the whole environment. I go, you know, KKR is, they've got, uh, a war chest for days, um, they are, they can, they can execute. Cause I had multiple offers to be, tr- to be fair. I had multiple offers. I was talking with hypnosis, uh, you know, Merck and I are friends. So that was, that was ha- happening in real time. Um, KKR came into the picture late and I, I thought of three things. One, the economy is going to shift. Money's not going to be cheap. It's a matter of not a matter if it's a matter of when, and it's probably in the next 12 months. And we were pretty much dead on like exactly 12 months later. That everything spiraled out of control so I knew valuations would compress um, and I I also knew that there was a false not false but let's say an overhyped inflation uh, of, of catalog valuations because it was everybody was frothing Merck started you know hypnosis songs started the kind of fervor and then it caught fire and valuations and multiples started just screaming out of the gate they went from, in, in, in 24 months, it went from 12x multiple on annual earnings being crazy high to 25x being achievable. And that's just unheard of. So I, I do a lot of investments, a lot of venture capital. I've did, I've probably got about somewhere between 50 and 60 placements in the last uh, two and a half years. So I was watching valuations across CPG, tech, uh You name it, Um, you know, multifamily housing market, you know, uh, cap rate compression so severe that like it was just getting ridiculous. You know what I mean? You're having to over lever and only use IO and God forbid the market turns, you're screwed. And I have friends that are in in super deep in multifamily and and you're just you start to see all these different warning signs of a a major correction. So then I put I I pressed the pedal to the metal and said, I want to take the money off the table. My catalog will very likely. Be worth significantly less on paper in 2022 than it is in 2021, um, and I and you know that if that's who knows if that's actually the case, but that was our prediction. Right. Well, Th- that. You, yeah.
0: I mean, in terms yeah. of interpreting the the external factors, I mean, you made about as sound a decision as you could, you know, based on the information that you had. Based, but it's uh, yes. It, it's worth noting though that you know a lot of people see it coming. This is a. A really, a generational turning point, I think, in monetary policy. Clearly, we're seeing it in interest rates and equity markets. You know, even if you saw this coming, in many cases, it still kind of hit you right between the eyes because it hit the bond markets and the equity markets Correct. at the same time. So, how did you kind of, even though you saw the risk and and certainly rang the register at an appropriate time on the song catalog, you know, based on current conditions? Yeah. How did how did you take further steps to kind of protect yourself and, and your yes. state through this very yeah. volatile time, including that private equity? I'm kind of curious. Good question. About
1: that. Good question. So so two, two things. I mean, first of all, to tie it back to my what I was saying earlier, my early 20s in LA, I got into real estate. I got keen on real estate, focused on real estate as my primary investment vehicle at age 20. I went over to a guy's house named Larry Larson. I think he's still alive. I haven't seen him in 20 years, but, um, and he, his son was managing uh, my cousin's band on curb records. And I'm over there having dinner just randomly one night in Beverly Hills, right behind the Beverly Hills hotel. I'm from Tulsa. I'd never seen, I'd never been in a crazy mansion. I'd never, I'm not from wealth uh, at all. So I'm in this house that was kind of owned by, it looked like it was owned by the Warner brothers at some point, had a screening room, old Hollywood classic Beverly Hills. And I'm sitting with the guy uh, that owns it in his kitchen, having a sandwich. And I, I thanked him for dinner, and I said, "Hey, thanks for having me. Your house is incredible." And he said, "Hey, you like this house?" And I said, "Yeah." He goes, uh, "What do you do?" I said, "I'm, I'm, I'm, I'm a recording artist. You know, I'm, I'm a songwriter and, a, and an artist. Are you any good?" Well, I'm okay. You know, I'm okay. I, just, I just won a record deal on MTV on TRL. There's competition, so I'm, I'm good enough to do something. He said, I got one word of advice for you. If you ever want a house like this, take every dollar you make in this industry, i.e., the entertainment industry, pull it out, do not put it back in, pull it out and buy real estate. And I was like, buy real estate? What do you mean? Like, by the way, no one in my family does that. So, like, that's that's com- completely foreign to me. I go, what do you mean buy real estate? He goes, find buildings, uh, apartments, houses, offices in places that people want to live that are in dense populations with in the types of places that, that aren't going anywhere. And you just, you buy those and you hold on. And that's literally what he said. to me. And I was like, I was like, okay. And then he points to a stack of envelopes on his kitchen table and he says, open up that top envelope. And I, I open it up and it's a check for $450,000 and I'm just like written out to his, you know, his name, trust, whatever. And I go, what? what? the hell is that? He goes, that's this month's rent for one of my buildings, and I was like, what? Like, you know, it's the largest amount of money I'd ever seen in my lifetime. Turns out, in the early '80s, he had, he had leveraged himself to the hilt when the you know recession in the early '80s. The guy had bought up four or five of the most prominent buildings on Rodeo Drive in Wilshire. He owned the Saks, He owns, I think, currently the Saks Fifth Avenue building in ro- right off Rodeo Drive. Wow in Beverly Hills. So, long story short, that impre- that made a huge impression. So, I just kind of made a mental note to myself that at age 20, if I ever make money, I'm putting it into real estate. First and foremost above everything else. Um, so now let's fat- fast forward, right, to um, to 2020, 2021. The analysis of the catalog sale all took place during 2020. I had used pretty much every penny of my previous catalog sale that was about 60-65 million. Um, I had parceled it out over five years from 2016 to uh, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, to 2020. It actually ran out in 2020. So the timing, we timed that intentionally too. It, pretty much every dollar of that, I divvied up across five years of investment and deployed exclusively to commercial real estate. Started buying buildings in Vegas, class A, credit tenants, uh, some slightly distressed and we would stabilize them, some just completely Built out, bought the 24 hour Walgreens on the Vegas Strip, which is the second highest performing Walgreens in the country. Um, started buying up other Walgreens, doing some arbitrage, flipping them, uh, holding on to some. Um, and I, I had already been doing that with the capital from the initial catalog sale. And starting in 2018, I crossed the 750 hour mark in real estate per year. And it also was I, you know, I, I, I was, if you buy the hours, I was doing more real estate than music starting in 2018 and carried that on to 2019. Very few people knew this or, or know this, this podcast might be one of the first uh, like you know, other than a couple articles in the Las Las Vegas review journal, not something that we've uh, I've been too public about, but started acquiring uh, in 2017, 18, 19, through the pandemic, of course, that killed the music industry. So then I just basically became a full-time real estate investor. And um, and coming into 2020, as we're analyzing the catalog sale, I decided to do it at the beginning of 2020. I looked at the just overall market, and I went, okay, my war chest runs out this year from my last little catalog sale. The uh, uh, multiple on music catalogs is currently – this is 2020 – at the all-time high in the history of the music industry. That's not going to happen again anytime soon. Uh, money is the cheapest it's been in 20 years or God knows how long, right? Interest rates are so low, it's ridiculous. They're giving it away. And, and there's accelerated depreciation, which is going to phase out in a matter of years. I'm already a real estate professional at this point, And so I'm getting the full benefits of all the things that, that they are involved in that and that's the that was the perfect storm and and then finally th- this is too good to be true right it's too good to be true the, the the economic environment of 2020 2021 we're in a global pandemic and and the economy's thriving what the hell is going on this is this is like banana land it's 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 unsustainable i got to take chips off the table and i got to go now and and that was the overarching conversation it was the perfect storm of all those things it was it was you know from from depreciation uh obviously I, I wanted to deploy as much capital into real estate as possible. Um, and we went nuts in 2021. I The second that money hit the bank, um, we were all over, you know, sourcing deals. And, you know, we took down $182 million portfolio in Vegas at the end of last year. Amazon being our primary core tenant, you know, the state of Nevada, Nevada Energy, all these, you know, phenomenal uh, tenants. Um, and Uh, I deployed, you know, probably I'd say uh, two thirds, a half, half, yeah, maybe 50% of the capital to real commercial real estate. And at the same time, I identified that um, if the market's going to crash, if there's going to be a recession, if there's going to be uh, some financial turmoil, which my friends at KKR were predicting would happen pretty much when it did happen, 2022. I also knew and doing the deal with KKR, they made me an LP. So I got a huge break on fees and all that stuff, you know, for private equity. And I picked four different funds, uh, KKR. I mean, some of their, you know, one of their funds hasn't, has averaged 39% uh, for the last seven years return uh, compounded, which is crazy. Their historic flagship fund uh, has a 26%, you know, over since, since 1976. It's crazy. So, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spread this out between. I, I don't love uh, the, um, uh, the public markets. Never been a huge fan. Right now, pretty much the only stock I own are companies where I, I did their Series A or B or C, and they've since gone public. Um, I'm a, just a much bigger believer in, in commercial real estate than I am in, in public markets because I don't like emotion affecting my net worth. That drives that shit drives me crazy. So, but you know, I, I, I have to say though
0: you know and I want to kind of backtrack because um, I know that you've had financial difficulties in your past you're not from yes. money I, I've, I've no. done some research and heard that you've received multiple eviction notices and and a lot of people when they have that scarcity and then they wind up with this abundance they become very protective over it yes but dude you're like a gunslinger and, and you're, <laughs> you' have the, the courage to to act on not just the impulses but the information you're getting, and, and in a decisive way, and I'm I'm really kind of blown away by that. But you know that's that's also to say I think that um, going forward, I really kind of want to pick your brain here because real estate, you know, at Leon Cooperman famously said never mistake brains for a bull market, and it's yep. it's been a good run yep. to this point. But things are the math is different now. Things are going to get a lot yes. more challenging. What areas of real estate do you find interesting now and going forward, given the new backdrop?
1: So I think that it's very dangerous. Uh, One thing that um, I've learned and that we talk about all the time amongst our partners, I always kind of chuckle when somebody who's in real estate, um, no matter how successful they are, makes broad sweeping declarations about an entire asset class uh suffering or or booming right cuz cuz it's it's market by market it always has been it always will be it's market by market you know the the office exodus right we own a ton of office but we own it in vegas we our strategy from day one and not just vegas but we're we're in north carolina we're in uh you know we properties in chicago and denver and you name it but we're pretty heavy in vegas and one of the reasons that i that we did that, and you know, our our focus has been location, location, of course, and uh, just high quality tenants. And if we're in an area where we have the network to stabilize a building, then we're all about distressed and then value add, and and you know, having it trying to do that in a narrow window, twelve to twenty four months to stabilize a building, because obviously there's the fat, and that's that's the um, you know, that's the win, right? Um, so. For us, though, we we chose we took a year in 2016. We spent the better part of a year analyzing every market in North America, and I was gathering collating data on population trends, um, density, uh, absorption, and average household income. All the you know, nothing that's rocket science. Nothing that's rocket science. I'm not that smart. Nothing that's rocket science. But looking at all the data, cross-sectioning that with tax-free states so we can name all the usual suspects you're in real estate you you know okay obviously austin nashville florida all of florida now right um uh boise idaho seattle uh las vegas um, so on and so forth so we we came up with the top 10 list we then looked at um narrowed it down to tax-free states uh that fell on that list of which there are four surprisingly or maybe not surprisingly then we looked at, um, cap rates, uh, you know, reflection, the, the, the connection between those localized cap rates and reality and, and what actually makes sense. And when we did that in 2016, 2017, Vegas was like raising its hand and doing backflips and you go, oh, but Vegas got hit the hardest in 08. Yes. The housing market got hit the hardest because they were overbuilding and, and the office market, uh, to an extent, um, Vegas, though, has the advantage of being the forever, like there is never going to be a time where Nevada isn't next to California, right? So it's always there. It's always going to be there, at least in our lifetime. And Vegas, being a tax free location, is the watershed of Los Angeles and California. So when California is struggling, whether it's with homelessness or econ- economically, tax hikes, um, safety, any 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 of the various things that people complain about with California, guess where these companies go? Guess where these people go? They go to Nevada. That's the nearest best location. Amazon, Tesla, everybody's setting up these huge fulfillment centers. So Vegas just, that was, the, I'd say the biggest risk we took, that I've taken in seven years, six years that, that my team and I took was just saying, you know what? Vegas, that's the win. That's going to be our we're going to go everywhere that's where there's an opportunity, but we're really going to double down in Vegas. That's what we did. Uh, uh, I had other people, you know, voices in my head in LA saying, Oh, be careful. I wouldn't do that. And, and then five years later, they're like, you know what? We wish we had joined you in, in those acquisitions and find a, don't try to boil the ocean, find a well where there's water, dig deeper. So now we have a, a, a management a management team that we love. We've got we, tenant whispers on the ground. We've got developers, and what I'm really excited about in 2023 is, uh, or the end of 2022 through 2023, yes, um, interest rates are, are literally on a, a complete, like, they're, they're skyrocketing. We are noticing for the first time in six months, in the last 30 days, that the selling side, the sellers are finally acknowledging the market and what's happening in real time. We're watching cap rates go up quicker than we've ever seen them. Um, we're having to do creative things like buy down the rate, right? And, we're, and we're, we're asking sellers to join us in that because, hey, like, look, we're all trying to do the same thing here. You, you guys want to make some money. Uh, we want to make a, a wise investment. Um, everybody has to win here, right? And it took months. There was There was three or four months where you just cap, you know, interest rates are skyrocketing, but cap, cap rates weren't moving. And, it, and, right. and that's a stalemate for everybody. Um, nobody wins in that scenario. I, I think one of the, the things that we're, we're focused on in, in 2023 and, and, and right now is is sh- uh, short-term debt. You know, we're not trying to do a typical 10-year note. We're doing five-year notes. We're buying down um, buying down rates. Um, we're having to get very creative. We're still making deals. Um, I'm still excited about High growth, uh, high absorption, high growth markets where demand still exceeds supply, i.e. Vegas, i.e. certain locations in Florida, i.e. Denver, you know, I, I hate even saying Austin and Nashville because they're so overblown now. But those places we, we did buy, we closed on a building last year, uh, 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 long term, um, uh, That we one of the best things in our portfolio uh, in Nashville, right next to the airport. But you know, um, it's,
0: and it's so interesting because, and I'll say this: I'm I'm in Vegas right now at a, yeah. an alternative investment conference, and and I've been in the last six months. I've been to Nashville, I've been to Austin, and it's cliche, but when you go to these cities, they are vibrant. You know, they're you can tell they're buzzing with life and activity. People are congregating there for a lot of reasons that maybe you know were were preordained, and you know to to make a point here. Yes you put your chips down in Vegas but you are not gambling you did years of research and, and yes. filters that other people probably didn't you know either take the time or have the wherewithal to do to see Vegas raising their hand and jumping up and down by me by me and so you know it, that's happening in those other cities as well the demographics and and the economic trends that are pushing investment dollars and pushing people into those communities and into those markets, um, it's evidence and it, it is cliche, you know, to, to, to say that you should buy something in Austin or move your business to Austin, but yeah, you'll also be rewarded very handsomely for doing so. So I think, you yes, know, it's
1: correct. not correct. Fiction. And No, it's not fiction. And, and I, I, you know, I'm friends with some guys, uh, here in LA that have, that have just made a killing in LA over the last 10 years, 15 years and run their family offices. And, it's a network, you know, it, it's, a, um, it's, uh, it's just a lot more complicated. You have to have a network almost of spies in cities like LA and New York to really make a killing. I've flipped out of, I had some high-end residential stuff that I bought in, in Tribeca uh, back in 2014, 15 when it was booming um, that I'm recently parting ways with. I'm not interested in high-end residential or taking bets on other people's uh, costly developments. Um I'm you know we're we're wrapping up about a 35 million dollar development in Denver uh right now we have a few units left super super again location 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 Cherry Creek North ir- ir- you know irreplaceable re- location um we're still seeing you know we got an all cash offer on a on a crazy uh, flip uh, in Denver 2 weeks ago so if you're if you're doing high quality there's a fl- all right you know there's a few fundamentals that are taking shape this year that are going to pour into 2023 uh, number one, obviously, flight to quality, right? So class B and class C offices, office space got hammered uh, in 2021, 2022. And, um, you know, you it, it, pre-pandemic, you had 9% work from home, uh, three and a half plus days a week. Uh, it spiked, it peaked at 30% uh, last year. And now that's dropped to um, uh, about 24, 25%. And it, the trend is going back towards the office, right? There will be a certain... Uh, demographic of, of, of employees, employers that, that won't need to return to the office. I got told, warned by again, a bunch of people. Oh my God, office is collapsing. Like Ryan, look out for your portfolio. And then we did a roundup with, with Wells Fargo, um, our primary lender, uh, at the end of last year. And I, I can't, I won't say who or anything else, but let's just say billions and billions of dollars of real estate that our primary, um, uh, guy overseas. And he said that in the entire portfolio of debt, they, uh, that they have out, uh, we were the number two performing portfolio, um, for 24 months across the wow. entire pandemic. That's incredible. Um, so it's, it's not an accident. It's, it's, um, I am, while I come across it maybe as like a gunslinger, the reality is dude, it's like, I information is everything. So I am petrified of losing a dollar. And I'm, I'm wired in the way where losing a hundred grand feels worse than winning five hundred uh, feels good. Right? I hate losing, and and so for us, it's maintaining relationships with tenants. It's it's having the people you know you know making smart moves. If you got a guy in your location that's a competitor, but th- th- make him a partner. Like do whatever you can to make him a partner. Like there's in real estate the the. I think the primary way that I've won in any investment whatsoever is I find people that are as passionate about an asset class, a city, uh, an investment, a lane. I find people that are, that are wired like me. So what I am in music and as passionate as I'm about music, I try to find people that are that passionate about real estate or, or venture capital. If I'm going to do that, that's the only way that I trust the process. And then I learned from them along the way Uh, and, and try to, you know, try to obsess as much as I can about, about, uh, the field that I'm investing in. And with real estate, it just clicked with me. And the reason it clicked with me so heavily is because in my job, uh, my, let's say former job, what used to be my primary job, which is just songwriting and and producing. It is a lottery ticket. Every time I catch a hit, it is a complete lottery ticket. I can't control the outcome. Two plus two in the music industry equals watermelon. It equals banana. There is no math. Two plus two in real estate equals four plus interest. And that to me was was an equation I could get behind. Everything in music is so ad hoc. It's so luck is, is, yes, you got to be great, but luck is tied to so many things. Also, 75 years after I'm dead, um, all of everything that I've created in the world Becomes public domain because of copyright law. Everything I've created in the world, I can only pass down maybe two generations at most, and then it's public domain. I, you can't touch a song when you're sitting in a room, an empty studio like I am now. I'm going, oh God, you know, will the magic show up today or won't it? And for me, I knew that at some point, I my, the hits will dry up, or culture will decide that I'm I'm old hat. And I won't be able to make a living the way that I once did in music. So the goal from the beginning was to to deploy enough capital into real estate that by the time I was like in my early 40s, uh, early, mid 40s, that the revenue from real estate would match or exceed a typical year of music revenue. That was my objective from the beginning so that I'm never driven to create or write because I I need the money. And, and the cool thing about real estate is, unlike music, once, you know, you know how it is, man, time is your friend. So once you own a building, you know you get 10 years out and you do a refi and you basically have nothing. You own, a, at that point, practically own a building for free, plus you're getting monthly cash flow. And you're able to, you know, if you're exiting 1031, there's so many things that you can do in real estate that you can't do in any other industry. And the money just goes up. It goes up, not down. Yeah. It goes up. And it just you know, compounds a, and compounds. It's right. Crazy. Einstein
0: uh, said that the eighth wonder of the world is compounding interest. Uh, he, <laughs> that he, he is a sharp
1: guy. 100%. He is a sharp yeah. guy and he is compounding interest is the eighth wonder of the world. Sharp and guy. So, but I'll tell you something,
0: yeah. burgeoning real estate impresario, Ryan Tedder is just knocking my socks off right now. And that, that analysis was an absolute masterclass. And i And I'm so excited for our listeners to get to go through your thought process and, and how you see this industry, you know, all of the other people on your staff right now are, are less excited because, Oh, by the way, you've got the number one song in the universe and probably, yeah. you know, 15 more podcasts today. So I want to steal one more minute from you to ask a question yeah. that has to be on everybody's mind. Yeah. We have a phrase that that we use on the wall and main podcast called the life work balance, because. yeah. When you call it a work-life balance, you're still putting work first. For sure. So I want to know. You know, you have um, a, a wife of almost 20 years. You've got two young boys, and how do you manage that life-work balance? How do you get um, all of this done?
1: Imperfectly, because nobody, anyone that tells you they've nailed it is is selling something, uh, or they're lying, right? Or they're about to write a book on how amazing they are. Um, I, I have weeks where I nail it, and I have weeks where I don't, and, I tr- and lately, I've had more weeks where I, where I nail it, and for me, it's very simple. From the moment, my kid, so like I drop my kids off a couple times a week at school, you know, at, at let's call it 820, the second the, the youngest kid is, is out the door, I literally throw in my AirPod. And I'm usually dealing with all things business, mostly real estate. I, I own a beverage company as well. Um, so I, I do board meetings and things like that. But I, for the most part, real estate is, my, is easily the, the occupies the majority of my time. I jump on the phone, 820, I'm calling. Uh, I'm making you know three or four phone calls, checking in on what's the status of this deal. Uh, did the refi come through on this other deal? how's the development doing in Denver? Like, you know, have we closed on the, the, the next building in, in, in wherever Vegas or Florida. And, and I'm kind of doing a round robin on that and between eight twenty AM and I'm working out, like when I go for runs, I'm taking phone calls on my jobs. Like I'm literally on, on phone calls. A lot of times when I'm running, I'm multitasking like crazy. Um, the, from eight twenty to call it 6 PM, I live, I work five minutes from my house. So the good news is I don't have a commute. Um, But from, by the time my wife texts me and says, what are we having for dinner? Are we making food here? Are you picking up food? Uh, Which I know a lot of your listeners can relate to. Um, From the moment I, from the moment I get, uh, drop the kid off to that moment, I am in an all out dead ass sprint. And that's how I maximize my day. I don't have these, Swaths of time. I don't do lunches. I don't do lunches. Like you, you, like if you never want to see me try and book a lunch meeting with me. Like I'm not going to go kill 90 minutes, uh, and and just you know, there's certain things that have been sacrificed. So, for instance, I agree with that completely. I, yeah, I was, in, I was, I was such a time suck. It makes no it's sense. such a time right. suck, man. And by the way, meetings, meetings can be a, a vacuous yeah. uh, time monster. So I'm very careful, and I asked my manager, a music manager. Uh, when when he schedules when someone asks to have a meeting, is this? And he knows what this means because I say it like all caps. Is this worth all caps? W O R T H my time. Wow. And yeah. and could this and be I'm an email? Just, could this be <laughs> an email? Could this be a text? And same with phone calls. Do we need to be on the phone or like is it a one answer? Is it a one word uh, response question? I'm very quick to this. I'm very decisive. Very quick. I'm always. Resp- I'm very responsive, and. I try to take care of things the moment someone asks me to take care of it, because otherwise it won't get done. And then when I travel uh, airplanes, um, you know, I'm taking I'm taking calls on the plane. I'm taking, uh, you know, when I'm in 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 transit for music or other related things, um, I'm doing business. I'm looking at buildings on tour. I'm I'm you know trolling JLL and and, uh, and Crexie and in. I'm looking at different buildings and kind of um, reading OMS and things like that. So I just use that time. I'm yeah. here's what I'm not doing. I'm not the guy that's going to watch a baseball game with you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to golf. I, I hate golf. Like they're just, but the cool thing is people go, Oh, you need to take time for yourself. This, that, not the other. I run about four or five miles a day. I work out, train with my trainer four times a week. I watch TV at home with my kids and uh, with my wife. I have plenty of me time it's, it's some of the normal dude stuff. Sports do not exist in my life. My best, pretty much my best friend in LA is a former pro baseball player played for like 15 years. And it's so ironic because like, I'm the least, I used to love, (laughs) I used to play every, I played every sport in high school, every sport. I was starting soccer, starting basketball, but I had to make a choice. Like I love travel. I love food. I love real estate. I love music and investing. And that eats up in my family, obviously. And whatever time I have from eight to six, I throw into those things. And then my family is like the rest of the time, the weekend. I don't work on the weekends. And and at nighttime, I'm pretty much, unless it's emergency, I'm not responding to you. So anyway, that's my work. That's
0: incredible. life work. that's the trick, right? right? Multitasking, stealing that time from other places to give it back to your family and back to your passion. I mean, it's a, I'm blown away that you're so passionate in in the way that you speak about real estate the way that you speak about music, the way that you speak about your your daily schedule. It's, you know, it becomes very obvious why you're so successful. But I mean, I, this is the greatest podcast I've ever listened to. And we're listening. to it. So not surprised by that. Awesome, man. Ryan Tedder. Well, thanks for the time. Thank you enough for spending your time with us today. And we truly appreciate you sharing this conversation with our listeners.
1: Absolutely. It's it's my pleasure. And anybody out there listening that uh, has any off-market deals with decent cap rates, hit me up. <laughs> <All
0: right. laughs> Careful what you wish for, but thanks I know. so much, Ryan Tetter, ladies right. and gentlemen. Thank you. See you.